Well, as most of you know, I ride a motorcycle and have done so for nearly 60 years. For some reason, Marilyn does get a bit more nervous now when I swing a leg, actually lift it over my Harley, than she used to. But I'm not ready to hand it off to Matt or Paul anytime soon. The last big trip we went on was in 2015. It included Maine, Nova Scotia, and the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. After we got home, Marilyn declared it to be the best motorcycle trip we'd ever been on, and probably our last. I do, however, still manage to put a couple thousand miles on my Harley every year, some of them with Sterling on our annual ride to the river. Next month, Marilyn and I are planning to fly to Arizona for a visit with Wendell and Linda, and while there, I'm hoping to borrow a bike and go for a ride through Death Valley. Marilyn has already made it clear that she's not interested. <laughs> if it happens, it'll probably be just me and Wendell, but that's okay. In fact, I really don't mind riding alone. And some of my most memorable encounters on the road have been when stopping to eat somewhere by myself. You know, when you're by yourself, you're more likely to strike up a conversation with strangers. And people are more likely to talk to you. You never know who you're going to meet when you stop for a bite to eat or something to drink. That was true even in Jesus' day. Last week, we looked at an encounter Jesus had with a woman at a well in Samaria. And we noted that he took advantage of that quite possibly ordained encounter by directing the flow of conversation with three pivotal statements. Give me a drink, which he used to introduce himself as the source of living water. Go call your husband, which forced her to confront the sin in her life. And God is spirit which resolved an ages-old conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews on where and how one should worship. Well, today we're going back to the well to see the effects of that encounter on the disciples, on Jesus, and on the Samaritans. We begin by noting that the disciples marveled. We're in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. 
This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus had just told the woman, I who speak to you am he, in response to her statement about the coming of the Messiah. And as we noted last week, she was the only person Jesus told that he was the Christ, other than Pilate, under direct questioning. Now, it was brought up in class that Jesus did confirm that he was the Christ after Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, when he asked the disciples who they thought him to be. But Jesus was hesitant to publicly declare himself to be the Christ due to the inflammatory nature of messianic expectations at the time. He did, however, identify himself as the Messiah to the woman at the well. And at this point, the disciples came. Whether they heard what they were talking about or not, we're not told. All we're told is that the disciples marveled that he had been speaking to a woman. That, in and of itself, was shocking. If they did overhear them talking about spiritual matters, it would have been even more shocking. The rabbis had said, better that the words of the law should be burned than delivered to a woman. But here was Jesus talking to a woman in public about the long-expected Messiah. In spite of their shock, however, the disciples did recognize that Jesus did not owe them an explanation for his actions. They didn't ask him or her, what do you seek? It's not clear who they were addressing with their first unspoken question, nor did they ask him, why do you speak with her? They didn't challenge his right to do whatever he chose to do, and we should learn from that. When God does something we don't expect, something we don't like or agree with, he owes us no explanation. He is God, and we are not. In spite of their silence, the woman sensed an uneasiness of the moment and decided it was time to leave. And John notes that she left her water pot, which leaves us to imagine why. Did she leave it behind so Jesus could get a drink? Did she leave it as a pledge that she would return or did she just get so excited that she forgot it? Whatever the reason, by leaving her water pot behind, it was obvious she had discovered something of more value than the water she had come to draw. She had discovered the source of living water and couldn't wait to tell others about it. When she got back to the city, she told the men. 
Apparently, she didn't have much of a relationship with the women of the city, having had five husbands and quite a reputation. But she invited the men to come see a man who had told her everything she had ever done. Well, he hadn't actually told her everything she had done, but she knew that he knew, and they knew what she had done. If he knew what she had done, he probably also knew what they had done. They had to meet this man. Maybe she was right. Maybe he was the Messiah. Meanwhile, the disciples were still trying to figure out what was going on. They had gone into the city for food. It was late in the day, and they knew Jesus was hungry, but he didn't seem to care about the food they brought. They were concerned that he hadn't eaten and said, Rabbi, eat. He answered them in a puzzling manner, he said he had food to eat they didn't know about. They immediately wondered if someone else had brought him supper, but he was simply trying to get them to think. He had a way of doing that, of saying things to make people think. To Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. To the woman, he said, in effect, ask of me and I will give you living water. Now, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. They were puzzled. He was talking with a woman and not showing interest in food when they knew he was hungry. Now, he would continue to do things that would puzzle them, things they would marvel about for three years, but that's the nature of Jesus. You can't squeeze him into a box of expectations, and we shouldn't try. He is God. He owes us no explanation. It's okay to marvel, even to be puzzled, but remember, he is God, and trust that he knows what he's doing. So how did he respond to the things that were happening at the well? Let's read on. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Like the water he offered to the woman, the food Jesus spoke of was spiritual in nature. My food, he said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He was saying that he had an inner source of sustenance that gave him power. He had something within that kept him going 
even when tired and hungry. He wasn't saying that he didn't need physical food. He did. He had become flesh and had the same fleshly needs we have. What he is saying is that some things are more important than food. You know, how often have we said, I'm starving? You know, an hour past mealtime. We're far from starving. When the kids used to say that, I had a, a standard response. I don't see any bloated bellies. You know, sometimes we allow physical appetites far too much control over us. Most of us could miss a meal or two without endangering our life. Jesus went 40 days in the wilderness without eating. Now, some things should take priority over eating. And doing the will of the Father is one of those things. We should have a hunger and thirst for righteousness that exceeds physical hunger. The desire to do God's will should be stronger than the desire to eat or any desire to fulfill a physical appetite. We shouldn't be slaves to our appetites. Jesus wasn't. Basically, he was saying to the disciples, I don't have time to eat. Not now. And that, by the way, is the best reason for fasting. It wasn't time to eat. It was time to harvest souls. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. The white-robed men from Sychar were within view, coming to meet the man who had told the woman everything she had done. The disciples needed to lift up their eyes. They needed to take them off their stomachs and their own needs and realize the harvest was ready. There was work to be done. We too need to lift our eyes off ourselves and see that God has work for us to do. In fact, we should always be ready for harvesting and for sowing. Now, in the physical world, you sow and then wait before you can do any reaping. But there is always sowing and reaping to be done in the kingdom because we don't necessarily reap what we sow. Someone else may have planted the seed that we harvest. And someone else may harvest what we plant. So we must be ready for either opportunity at any time. And there's no rivalry here, no competition as to who gets to claim the soul harvested. Both the sower and the reaper rejoice together because we are together gathering fruit for eternal life. And that brings rejoicing to all. Indeed, there is no greater satisfaction than gathering fruit for eternal life. In fact, there is more satisfaction in knowing you had 
a hand in the sowing or harvesting that led to someone's eternal life than in eating. Jesus knew that and gladly gave up his dinner to labor in the fields that were ready to be harvested. I trust we would do the same. If we sensed that someone we loved or cared about was ready to embrace Jesus, wouldn't we make that the highest priority in our life at that moment? Everything else would fall away. We need to be ready to be used by God at any moment. And the disciples didn't quite understand that. But the Samaritans, they were ready. Let's read on. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Many of the Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. She had said enough to get them there. She didn't convert them, but got them curious enough to come and see. And sometimes that's enough. That's all we need to do. If you have met Jesus at Chatham Christian Church and think someone else might meet him by coming to worship and study his word with us, invite them. Sow a little seed. Even if you're not sure how to harvest. Sometimes sowing is all you need to do. And there's no greater joy than knowing that a little seed you planted is bringing forth fruit for eternal life. And the seed the woman from Samaria sowed was taking root. When the men from the city met Jesus... They wanted to spend time with him. And when they asked him to stay, he stayed. It wasn't on his schedule. His primary mission at this point was to go to the lost sheep of Israel. He would later commission the apostles to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. A ministry in Samaria wasn't on his current itinerary. But he changed his schedule to meet a need. He did that quite often. He made time for the Samaritans. And as a result, their faith, built on the testimony of others, became conviction built on personal experience with Jesus. And they made that very clear. 
They said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Now, like them, it's imperative that our faith deepens into the conviction that comes from personal experience. Experience that comes from spending time with Jesus. He's not too busy. Are you? After spending time with Jesus, the Samaritans not only believed Jesus to be the Messiah, they knew he was the Savior of the world. Now, I find it interesting that the Samaritans, a mixed race, were the first to understand that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. Now, John would later write, we know that he's the Savior of the world, but the Samaritans were the first to recognize it. It would appear they didn't view the Messiah as the provincial savior of only one nation, be it the Jewish nation or the United States of America. They saw that he was the savior of the world. Indeed, a tremendous thing took place in this encounter at the well in Samaria. Jesus went from being recognized as a Jew to being recognized as a prophet. And then to Messiah, and finally, the Savior of the world. Because of a woman's testimony and an invitation to come and see, Jesus apparently became the Savior of many in Samaria. If you are here today because someone invited you to come and see, I pray that you too will acknowledge Jesus to be the Savior of the world and make him your savior as well. The savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in?